Welcome to Understand Murdoch, a podcast from The Post and Courier, South Carolina's largest newspaper. Our award-winning reporters have spent more than a year digging into the Murdoch saga to bring you the latest news and in-depth analysis as we covered the story of drugs, deceit, and death in South Carolina's rural low country. And now we're here to provide quick daily updates on Alec Murdoch's highly anticipated double murder trial in Colleton County. Hello, welcome to Understand Murdoch. I'm one of your hosts, Nathan Stevens. I'm here with Jocelyn. And Jocelyn, I know the state is slowly inching towards resting this case. Walk us through who jurors heard from today. Yeah, we're thinking the state will hopefully rest its case tomorrow. It's definitely been a lengthy few weeks of their witnesses. So jurors heard first this morning from Kenneth Kenzie, and he's a chief deputy at the Orangeburg County Sheriff's Office, and he also teaches crime scene-related classes at Claflin University. Did he investigate Maggie and Paul's deaths? Not directly. So prosecutors, police departments, and defense attorneys across the country actually will hire Kenzie to examine death cases and particularly evidence collected in those cases as he's a qualified examiner. So the state hired him on this case. Exactly. So he's acting as an independent outside expert. The state actually didn't hire him until October of last year, which would have been a few months after they indicted Ellick on the murder charges. Okay. And what did he do? So state investigators basically handed Kenzie all their evidence for him to review and make his own conclusions. Kenzie specializes in crime scenes, so he really focused on reviewing that. And he said he went out to Moselle sometime in December of last year and took his own measurements and created his own reconstruction of the scene. And did he find anything interesting? Kenzie really focused his testimony today on how Paul was shot. And his findings were pretty much in agreement with the pathologist who previously told jurors that Paul suffered an initial non-fatal shot in his chest before receiving that second gunshot wound, which ultimately exited his head and would have immediately killed him. But Kinsey used his own calculations to determine where Paul would have been standing and where the shooter was located when Paul was killed. And what was his conclusion? So Kinsey said he believes Paul was standing in the middle of the feed room and angled slightly away from the door when he suffered that first blast to his chest. Then, based on the path of blood droplets on the floor, Kenzie says Paul would have slowly shuffled forward to that open door, and Paul would have barely made it past the door frame when he was shot the second time. We know he was found lying face down with his feet inside the feed room, and Kenzie said this second fatal blast caused Paul to immediately fall down into that position. This would have been an involuntary movement. And where does Kenzie think the shooter was standing? So he believes the shooter was standing just outside the feed room when they fired the gun both times. And if you're facing the feed room door, the shooter would have been to its right, according to Kenzie. And he thinks the shooter fired at a more traditional angle the first time, meaning the shotgun would have likely been held up to their shoulder and parallel with the ground. And what about that second fatal shot? Well, defense attorney Dick Harpootlian really focused on that one during his cross-examination. 
Kinsey's calculations, which were based on blood and bodily fluid evidence photographed at the crime scene, suggest this second blast was fired at an upward angle. So would this mean the shotgun was being held closer to the ground when it went off? That's exactly right. Kinsey believes the shooter stayed outside the feed room door to fire this second shot as well, but they were holding the gun at a low angle, so like with its bottom closer to the ground and then the muzzle angled up, and the blast ultimately skimmed Paul's left shoulder before entering his neck and head. Wait, would this have anything to do with the shooter's height, like that person was really short? Well, that's one of the theories Harputlian seemed to float today. He said it doesn't make any sense to him why the shooter would have fired first from a standard angle, like we mentioned, and then switch to holding the gun very low to fire off that second shot. But Kinsey said he couldn't tell Harputlian, you know, anything about the shooter's psychology, only the angles and evidence he's noticing. Maybe the shooter could have moved to a crouching position or even laid on the ground. Exactly. There are so many variables that are virtually impossible to determine. And did Kinsey discuss Maggie's injuries? He did. And again, his findings were pretty much in line with what the pathologist determined during her autopsy. So the first two non-fatal blasts to her thigh and abdomen were likely fired in quick succession and at close range based on their similar angles and markings. Kinsey believes the shooter then came to stand directly behind her as they fired that first fatal shot, which we know entered her chest and actually wound up hitting her in the jaw and brain. The shooter then would have walked around Maggie's body to fire the final shot, which was also fatal, and it went directly into the crown of her head. Okay, we've heard a few mentions in this trial about some muddy markings on the back of Maggie's calf. Did Kinsey say anything about this? He did. Kinsey is also an expert in shoe and tire impressions, and he looked at a photograph of the muddy print on her calf that was taken at the crime scene. He also photographed the tires of an ATV, which had been parked very close to where Maggie's body was found. And in his opinion, after looking at both impressions, the muddy impression on the back of her calf matches the ATV's tire track. Does this mean Maggie was run over with an ATV? No, Kenzie said he didn't find any evidence of that. Uh, Instead, he thinks Maggie must have maybe backed up into the tire at some point and her calf rubbed up against it. Okay. Who did jurors hear from next? They heard from Ryan Kelly, who's a special agent with the state law enforcement division. Did he also investigate the killings at Moselle? Um, He only had a tangential role in that, but he was actually the lead investigator in the September 4th roadside shooting where Ellick was shot in the head. Okay, I'm not sure if we've talked a lot about that. Is the judge allowing evidence about that incident to be admitted in the murder trial? So this was actually a point of contention yesterday. Prosecutors and defense attorneys have briefly mentioned this shooting, which I should note happened in September of 2021, to the jurors. But Judge Clifton Newman ruled yesterday morning that further evidence and testimony about it would not be admissible. But then at some point during a witness's testimony yesterday, he ended up reversing his decision. 
he said defense attorney's line of questioning with this witness had opened the door for the evidence to come in. So here we are. All right. Well, can you tell us what Agent Kelly had to say about that incident? Yeah. So he provided jurors with an overview of his investigation and how he came to find out Alec had lied in his initial statements to law enforcement about the circumstances behind the shooting. Prosecutors also played for jurors Alec's 911 call from that day, as well as the full interview he gave to Agent Kelly in which he confesses to a number of things, including the shooting scheme, his years-long opioid addiction, and stealing money from his clients at the law firm. That is a lot. Can you start by giving us a rundown of his investigation? Sure. So remember Alec had met with his best friend, Chris Wilson, the morning of September 4th, 2021, after he gets fired from his law firm for stealing client money. And we heard Wilson testify to this the other day about that confrontation. Right. He also confesses to his drug habit, correct? Yeah. So a few hours after this conversation, we know that Alec calls 911 around 1.30 in the afternoon to say he's been shot by an unknown assailant. Alec says he was driving down the road when he gets a flat tire and he pulled over to look at it. And this truck drives past him and then doubles back. Alec says a nice looking man who he's never seen before gets out to help him. But when Alec turns his back, he says the man shoots him in the head. Okay, what happens next then? Well, Alec is airlifted to a hospital in Savannah, Georgia, where Agent Kelly meets him. And Alec basically gives the same statement to Agent Kelly he gave to the 911 dispatcher. The agent then drives out to the crime scene and notices the car Alec was driving has a road flat tire. And these tires are designed to actually continue working, even if they get a flat, with the exception, of course, of some catastrophic damage. But Agent Kelly sees only a small puncture wound on the tire. So he kind of starts to think something is amiss. He went back to the scene the next day to look for what might have caused the flat. And the only thing he found was a utility knife. So when does Alec's version of the events that day begin to kind of unravel? Well, pretty quickly, it seems. So Agent Kelly said DNA profiles from the knife match Alec and a man named Curtis Eddie Smith. We talked about him yesterday, correct? That's right. He is a distant cousin of Alec's. Okay, so what happens next? Well, Alec's brother Randy calls sled agents on September 6th, so two days after the shooting. And Randy wants to inform them that Alec has been making calls from the hospital to unknown numbers. He even apparently tried paying some of the nurses to use their phones. And Randy gives sled agents these numbers. One of them belongs to cousin Eddie. And sled agents also get a hold of surveillance footage from the scene, which shows the Mercedes that Alec was driving, followed by Cousin Eddie's blue Chevrolet pickup truck. So the next day, sled agents execute a search warrant at Cousin Eddie's house in Walterboro. Did they find anything? Yeah, Agent Kelly said they found drugs and a drug reference guide, as well as a small notebook that seemed to be like what Cousin Eddie would have used as his ledger to keep track of drug deals. Okay, so it seems like sled agents have connected Cousin Eddie to the September 4th shooting by this point. Uh, When did they talk to Alec again? 
Well, they tried to set up an interview with him the same day they did the search warrant on Cousin Eddie's house, so September 7th. But Alec had entered a detox center by this point and was difficult to reach. Six days later, though, on September 13th, Harputlian calls Agent Kelly and says that Alec can do a phone interview with flood agents. Wait, wait, wait. Why was Harputlian there? Well, by this point, Harputlian and Jim Griffin have actually been hired to represent Alec. So they were present for this interview with flood agents. And that's when Alec confesses that his initial tale about being shot by an unknown person was a total lie. Okay, you said prosecutors played the full interview for jurors today. Can you give us the highlights? Sure. Alec was really forthcoming with them and quite apologetic. Before investigators could ask him any questions, he actually stops them and apologizes for lying to them in his initial interviews. Okay, interesting. Yeah, basically, Alec tells them that after getting fired from the law firm and you know, realizing a lot of his alleged thefts were about to come to light, he decided to kill himself. But he wanted his remaining son, Buster, to be able to collect on his $10 million life insurance policy. And the policy excludes death by suicide. So Alex says, you know, he realized he had to find someone to kill him. And he decided on Cousin Eddie. Yeah, he says he called up his cousin and they met in Barnville where Alec asked him to shoot him in the head. He said Cousin Eddie was apparently surprised at first, but then he agreed. So Alec outlined a plan to him where, you know, he'd pull over and make his own tire go flat, and then Cousin Eddie would pass him, double back, and shoot him. And did Alec say whose gun they used? Yes, Alec said he handed Cousin Eddie a revolver that he'd taken from his mother's house earlier that day. and. He also said, which was interesting, that Cousin Eddie didn't really try to stop him. Alec made it seem like he was quite agreeable to the whole plan and that it all came together very fast. Did Alec say if there was anything in it for Cousin Eddie? Yeah, they asked him about this in the interview. Alec said he didn't pay Cousin Eddie any money, which you certainly wouldn't have expected, I don't think. Yeah, because Alec had been paying him tons of money for drugs, correct? That's what he said. Some weeks he'd pay Cousin Eddie upwards of $60,000 for pills. And Alec also confessed that the majority of this money came from illegitimate sources. Okay. And I know it's obvious, but Alec didn't actually die after all of this. Was he shot, though? Yeah, he was. He said he lost his vision for about two minutes and was disoriented. But he was able to call 911 and speak clearly with the dispatcher. And Alec said in the interview, he's really not sure what happened, only that Cousin Eddie missed and hit him in the very back of his head instead. And that by the time Alec came to his senses, Cousin Eddie was gone. Did Alec ever explain why he lied to investigators in those initial statements? Well, Agent Kelly asked him that, and Alec said he didn't really have a good reason, just that he was in a bad place. Did defense attorneys get a chance to cross-examine Agent Kelly? No, Judge Newman had to end court a bit early today, so we'll start back up with that in the morning. Thanks as always, Jocelyn. Thanks, Nathan. That's all we have for now. For more in-depth coverage of this trial, as well as the latest news on the Murdoch story at large, stay tuned to postandcourier.com slash Murdoch. 
You can find us on Twitter at Post and Courier. 